I have watched people through the years struggle mightily with forgiveness. Forgiving someone who has hurt them maliciously and, 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 it's, and it's been significant. I struggle with it in my own heart, in my marriage. And yet it's not just the struggle. I've also watched through the years many people that can never get out of the endless cycle of resentment and desire for revenge when they've been hurt. And the people that I've met with and talked through on this level, they understand and they understand the importance of forgiveness. They see that it's so critical, but they have a distorted view of forgiveness that keeps them in this endless cycle where they can't get beyond the desire to seek revenge or, or have vengeance or just to see somebody hurt for the pain they inflicted on them. And so I asked the question this morning, as we look at the end of this Joseph story, what is forgiveness? And we're going to see as we read, this story begins to teach us what forgiveness is and therefore help us get to a place where we can actually give and receive forgiveness. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. If you don't have a Bible, your sermon guide in your order of worship has the scripture printed on it. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Remember how many years this has been. 20 plus years of being abandoned and now he's revealing himself to his brothers. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. <laughs> so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. 
And Benjamin wept on, upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Now we go to chapter 50. And what I read to you now is a, a period of 17 years between when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers that we just read. It's been 17 years, and now we pick up when their father, Jacob, has died. Verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What is forgiveness? We're going to look at three things. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is life-giving and forgiveness is complete. Let's start with forgiveness is costly. Notice after 17 years, right? Joseph revealed himself, forgave his brothers. He wept over them. 17 years later, when their father Jacob dies, what do the brothers do? They fear payback. Verse 15, maybe that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all evil we did to him. And, and embedded in verse 15, in this little verse, is the core of forgiveness. The brothers understand that they wronged Joseph. They understand that therefore there's a debt. <laughs> there's a debt to be paid down. They understand that, that wronging someone creates a debt. And this was no minor offense. I just take you back to chapter 37, right? Their, their original intent with their youngest brother, Joseph, at the age of 17, a junior in high school, was to kill him. And instead of killing him, they said, well, just throw him in a pit and then we'll sell him into slavery. It was a traumatic event. Chapter 42 picks it up when the brothers are thinking back to what they did and they said, we remember the distress and the anguish in his soul when he pleaded with us to stop. So you get the picture now. This 17-year-old teenage boy about to be abandoned by his family. And his brothers are about to sell him into slavery and he's pleading with them, stop, please don't do it. And they do it anyways. It was a traumatic event. Clearly for Joseph, but even for the brothers, because now Many, many years later, we're at what, 30, 47 years later. They still wonder, is Joseph going to pay us back? Because they knew how, they, how badly they had sinned against him and how badly they had wronged him. The, the brother's treatment of Joseph created a debt and they were wondering if Joseph was going to make them pay down the debt. You see, Joseph was in a place of power. He was prime minister of Egypt. He could have done it. He could have thrown them in prison. He could have put them to death. He could have refused them food and watched them starve to death. He had the power to make them pay. 
And to really understand this concept of forgiveness, you first have to understand that when you wrong someone, you create a debt. There is a debt of sin. Now, sometimes that's physical. There's a physical debt. You can take something from somebody. You can steal something. You can steal money, right? Like Zacchaeus, the tax collector, right? You can steal money and create a physical debt. But most of the time, what we experience day to day is emotional debt. It's what we read in the confession in our prayer this morning is that you can speak unkind words, you can gossip, you can slander, or you cannot speak words when you should. And you can create emotional debt. And this is oftentimes what happens in marriages. There is emotional debt. Right? That's the first, when you understand forgiveness, you understand that there's a debt that's created. And then if you understand that, you understand the second piece of it, that debt just, just doesn't disappear. Right? Debt doesn't just go away. The, the adage that time will heal anything, that's wrong. Time doesn't take away a debt. <laughs> Listen, if you have major credit card debt and one day you get a letter in the mail from the bank saying your credit card balance is zero, that debt just didn't disappear. Somebody paid for it. Either the bank absorbed it or some donor, generous donor, stepped in for you and paid it off. But the debt doesn't just go away. And so you have to understand that, that when you hurt someone, you create debt and somebody has to pay it off. And it gets paid off one of two ways. It gets paid off one of two ways. Either the person, the person that you have inflicted hurt upon has a choice. They can either absorb the debt or they can turn around and make you pay, which is to hurt you back. But one of those two things has to happen. Forgiveness is when you absorb the debt, when you absorb the cost, you absorb the hurt and pain. This is why the language of forgiveness is so critical to real reconciliation. We have a phrase that we use with reconciliation. It gets used a lot. And it's the phrase, I'm sorry. The phrase, I'm sorry, does not deal with the debt. Now, let me, let me translate, I'm sorry. There's, there's a couple ways that that can get translated. On the positive side, it means, I am sorrowful that you are hurting. Now, that's good if you're sorrowful that someone's hurting, but that doesn't deal with the debt. On the negative side of I'm sorry, it's, I'm sorry you got offended by that. I'm sorry you took that so seriously. Right? Again, it doesn't deal with the debt. Now, will you forgive me? Totally different story. When you say to someone, will you forgive me? Do you, know, do you realize what you're asking them to do? You're asking them to pay down the debt. You're asking them to absorb it. Take, for example, let me use physical debt as an example because we can get our hands around it. If you take $100 from somebody, you steal $100 from somebody and you spend it, and they find out and they're angry, rightly so, and you go to them and you say, will you forgive me? You know what you're saying. Will you absorb the $100 and not make me pay you back? See, when we say to someone, and, and, and that's, 
Most of the time we're dealing with emotional debt. When you say, will you forgive me? You're saying to that person, will you absorb the hurt that I inflicted on you and not turn around and make me hurt? We're trying to teach our children now the language of forgiveness and teaching them not to say, I'm sorry, or I apologize. Right? We're trying to teach them to say, will you forgive me? Especially with my son. I'm trying to teach him to say, will you forgive me to his sister for something that he did? Because I want them to learn about reconciliation and I'm sorry doesn't, doesn't do anything about the debt. And so I would encourage you, not just with your children, but in your marriage, if you're gonna use the phrase, I'm sorry, say, I'm, I'm sorrowful you're hurting, that's great. The debt's still there. To get to the point where you say, will you forgive me? Which is to say, will you pay down the debt? I know that's a big ask. And when that person says, yes, I forgive you, do you realize what's happened? That person has said, yes, I will pay down the debt that you caused. That's, that's forgiveness. It sheds light on Jesus' words on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You understand what Jesus was saying to his father. He was saying, Father, I'll absorb the debt. Don't make them pay for their sin." I'll absorb it. I'll pay it down. You say, what would motivate Jesus to do that? Well, as we've looked in this Joseph story, Joseph is a Christ figure. He's a type of Christ in the story. He's pointing forward to the coming Messiah. And so you notice at the, at the beginning of chapter 45, when he reveals himself to his brothers, what does he start doing? Weeping. He starts weeping. And by the middle end of 45, after he spilled his soul, he's hugging their necks and weeping. And it's a picture of what our Savior Jesus does the two times in the New Testament that he's recorded weeping. It's because Jesus is moving towards us with compassion, towards those he loves to forgive them. And so as Jesus moves towards us to forgive us with compassion, he calls us to turn around and move towards others with compassion to forgive. Rabbi Zacharias, he, he shared the following true story of a conversation he had with a young Muslim Palestinian in a coffee shop in Jerusalem. And he was talking with this young Palestinian uh, who, who was sharing with Ravi a conversation he had overheard between a Muslim sheik and a Christian missionary named Brother Andrew. And this Muslim sheik had recently ordered the killing of eight Israelis because they had killed four Palestinians for crimes committed against Jewish people. And then listen to this dialogue between the Muslim sheik and the Christian missionary, Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew asked the sheik, who appointed you judge and jury and gave you the authority to order such killings? The sheik replied, I'm not the judge and jury. I am merely an instrument of God's justice. There's some silence. And then Brother Andrew asked, what place is there then for forgiveness? And the sheik replied, forgiveness is only for those who deserve it. After a long silence, this, this young Palestinian said to, to Ravi Zacharias, he said, I thought at once this explains everything and nothing. 
If forgiveness is merited, then it's not really forgiveness, is it? In your relationships, in your marriage, in your friendships with siblings, parents, co-workers, are you forgiving those who have hurt you? Or are you asking them to pay it back? Or are you hurting them to pay them back? Let me ask, this might be even a, a more relevant question. When someone's hurt you, or are you committed to forgiving them only when they have shown enough remorse? You realize that when you're not willing to forgive until you see remorse, that it's a, it's a twisted way of getting them to hurt, right? You're saying, I just want to see them hurt, then I'll forgive them. That's not forgiveness. Because you've said, I want to see them hurt. They're going to pay for this. Then I'll forgive them. No, forgiveness. Listen, it's costly. It means that you absorb the hurt, that you absorb the pain that someone else has inflicted upon you. So first, forgiveness is costly. Second, forgiveness is life-giving. It's life-giving. Look at verses four to five of chapter 45. This is when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And then verse seven, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then Joseph goes on to repeat this in, in chapter 50. But what I want you to see here is he acknowledges the sin. He acknowledges that his brothers threw him and cast him into slavery. But he chooses to forgive them. And his forgiveness is what starts this whole thing in motion where this life, this family, this dysfunctional family is brought back to life. In fact, you get to uh, the end of 45 when Jacob, the father, hears that Joseph's still alive. He thought his son was dead. And he hears he's alive and he says, and it says the spirit of their father, Jacob, was revived. Now, Jacob was revived clearly because Joseph was alive, but understand that forgiveness is what propelled this whole thing into motion, right? That Joseph forgave when he had the power to hurt them back. And we see here that forgiveness is the seed that sprouts life into broken relationships, into broken families, into dysfunctional work relationships. That forgiveness is the seed. It's the start that, that, that promotes life. I remember when I was, I vividly remember this one summer. I believe I was in late elementary school and we were gonna go on vacation as a family that summer. My dad was on a business trip in Japan and the plan, we lived in South Florida. The plan was to, for us to take a train up to South Carolina to meet him in South Carolina when he flew back from his business trip and go on vacation. Well, a few days before uh, we were to get on the train to go to South Carolina. My brother and I got in a, a, just a wicked fight in the living room. My brother was three to four years older than me, so he was bigger than me. He, he picked me up and he, and he threw me against the, the wall in the living room that held a clock. Now this clock was a, it was a redwood clock. My dad, 
a couple years earlier on our vacation to California had bought this piece of redwood and he brought it home and he got a clock made out of it and it's hanging on the wall. I get slammed up against it. It drops to the floor and it splits in two. And my brother and I were scared to death. Now, I, I probably would go overboard to say we feared for our lives, but it felt like that. My mom said, we're not calling your dad in Japan. When we get to the hotel in South Carolina and he walks in the door, you're coming clean. For the next two or three days, I didn't sleep well. I didn't eat well. I was anxious. I was fearful. I was functionally dead, so to speak. And we took the train, we got to South Carolina, we got in the hotel room, the door opens and in walks my dad. And of course, after the initial two weeks he had been in Japan, woo, families together, my brother and I come clean. And my dad forgave us. And when he forgave us, my spirit was lifted. My brother's spirit was lifted. We could laugh again. We could live again. We could eat again. We could sleep again. That's what forgiveness does. It promotes life. It causes life to flourish in relationships and in families. But forgiveness doesn't only cause life to flourish in those who receive it. Right? You, you understand it in the Joseph story with the brothers. They, they had hidden guilt for all these years. And finally, their, their brother Joseph you know, forgives them. And, and, and you can understand the life that is, erupts in them for receiving forgiveness. But forgiveness also has a life-giving nature to the one who is granting forgiveness. Remember, Joseph was in a place of power. He could have made his brothers pay with a snap of the finger. Imprisonment, death, refusing them food. It was right there in front of them. And Joseph, and we see it in the story, he had to realize two things to be able to forgive his brothers. And that is number one, he had to come alive to God's sovereignty over his life. And number two, he had to die to his plan for his life. Now let's look at both of those. First, coming alive to God's sovereignty. Right, the first thing he says to his brothers after he reveals himself in chapter 45 is don't be distressed, don't be angry for selling me into slavery. What? For God sent me before you to preserve life. You say, wait a minute, no. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Their slavery is what sent him into Egypt, yes. But what we learn here and what Joseph believed and understood is that God ultimately was the one who used the brother's sin to move Joseph where he wanted him to be in Egypt. That God was sovereign over this. Joseph understood that God uses sin, not just personal sin that you commit, but the sin of others against you to accomplish his purpose for your life. And if you don't understand that, and I want to speak real tenderly here because I understand that in a room of this size, there are some of you 
who have experienced being sinned against in profound ways, significant ways, life-altering ways, where someone's, uh, someone else's sin changed the trajectory of your life. If you don't believe that God is sovereign over that, that God uses someone else's sin against you to accomplish his purpose for your life, you will be locked up in a prison of bitterness and anger and resentment and be unable to get out and be unable to forgive. But if you come alive to God's sovereignty in your life and you, you look at the pain that people have caused and you look at where it's put you and you understand God's sovereign over that, then you're in a position to freely forgive underneath God's sovereignty. So to be able to forgive, you've got to be able to come alive to God's sovereignty. But second, you have to die to your plan for your life, right? Look at Joseph. Look at Joseph. His life at age 17 was derailed by his brothers. That is a true statement. At age 17, as a teenager, his brothers abandoned him. He was abandoned by his family and sold into slavery and thrown into Egypt. Now, I guarantee at age 17, which most 17-year-olds aren't working out the 10-year plan for their life, maybe the 10-day plan for their life, but let's just say Joseph at age 17 was thinking about his next 10 years. I guarantee it wasn't in a pit sold into slavery in Egypt, unjustly treated, thrown into prison? Of course not. So when he forgives his brothers, understand he's forgiving them for the hurt they inflicted, but the way his life was absolutely altered. Now, granted, he's prime minister of Egypt at this point, but all the suffering, all the hardship was not what Joseph had envisioned for his life. See, to truly forgive someone, you have to die to self. To truly forgive someone, especially if it's been significant and it's altered your life, you have to die to self. You have to die to what your life could have been. Otherwise, you'll be locked up in a prison of resentment and anger. John 12, 24 says this, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, of course, Jesus was speaking here of his imminent death, his death that would bear fruit. Right? But he's also speaking of what is called for amongst Jesus' followers. It's the same idea that we die and, and through death we bear fruit. Jesus said, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll save it. Right? If you lose your life, you'll find life. It's, it's paradoxical. But when you die to self, which is what you have to do to forgive. You have to die to selfish pride, whether you're giving forgiveness or receiving it. That when you die to selfish pride and you die to self, you actually find life. So this teaches us a couple things. One is this. You can't give or receive forgiveness horizontally unless you first receive it vertically from God. That you can't truly forgive or receive forgiveness horizontally until you first receive it from God. 
And the second is this, that when you are, when you are, when you forgive, you're set free from the prison of anger, bitterness, and resentment. Let me move on to the third point here. What is forgiveness? It's costly. It's life-giving. And then third, it's complete. It's complete. At the end of the story in chapter 50, the brothers start to seemingly go backwards. Right? They go backwards. In verse 15, they start to fear that 17 years later, after their father Jacob dies, that Joseph's going to finally kick it into gear and pay him back. That he's finally going to hurt them. Right? They're going backwards. He'd already forgiven them 17 years ago. And so they're uncertain of their forgiveness. And what is, what is Joseph's reply to their uncertainty? It's, it's interesting. Look at verse 19. How does Joseph respond to their uncertainty? He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You know what he's saying there? If you fear that I'm going to punish you, you need to understand I'm not the one that ultimately works out justice or administers justice, that that's in God's hands. In other words, if you're fearing my punishment, there's a greater punishment you need to fear. And what he's saying to him is, you need God's forgiveness. I can forgive you. I have. I did it 17 years ago. And one of the reasons that maybe 17 years later, they're still wondering if they're going to get paid back is they still haven't squared with God's forgiveness. And so the point I just made earlier, that you can't, you can't give or receive forgiveness horizontally until you have first come to grips, understood, embraced God's forgiveness. That if all you're doing is receiving or giving horizontal forgiveness, right? The other flip side would be if you're giving or receiving horizontal forgiveness and you find yourself still eaten up by something, right? It may be that you haven't squared with God's forgiveness. And let me add a litmus test question here. If you're the type of person um, that doesn't give forgiveness well, doesn't grant it, or doesn't receive it well, that you really struggle to forgive people and you struggle to receive forgiveness. If that is you, then there may be a disconnect with your understanding of God's forgiveness. That the horizontal problem of forgiveness is indicative of something that you're not understanding about God's forgiveness or something you haven't embraced about God's forgiveness. NPR did a report recently on a condition called, you ready for this? Hyperthymesia, also known as highly superior autobiographical memory. Now, what is that? 55 individuals in the United States are diagnosed with it. And it's a condition where you have this obsession with the past. And not just an obsession with past events, but the ability to recall in super detail past events in your life. So they interviewed one of these 55, Alexander Wolf, and, and listen to what she said in this interview with NPR. She described how she remembers every detail of a mundane activity, like driving to Target for groceries, which occurred more than 10 years ago. She remembers what she wore and ate every day for the past decade. She remembers if the fan in the bedroom was running on this date last year. Now, you say, wow, that could be really, really advantageous. It can. It can also be a curse because one of the other people that they interviewed that has this condition, 
was a man who said this. He remembers all the wrongs done against him and all the wrongs he has committed. And he said it gives memories, it brings memories that haunt and harass him all the time. Now, here was NPR's conclusion. You ready? We need to forget as much as we need to remember. Now, the gospel's conclusion to hyperthymesia, right? Memories of past sin that haunt you and harass you. The gospel's conclusion is not forget it. Try not to remember it. The gospel offers something much more powerful and effective than that, than trying to forget it. And it starts with God. In the Psalms, when God says he remembers your sins no more, that does not mean that God has amnesia. It doesn't mean that God literally just kind of strikes your sin from the past from his memory. If that was the case, just go with it for a second. If that was the case, you would always be fearful, wouldn't you? That what? He'd, he'd recollect it. Somehow it'd come back and then he's gonna smite you for it. No, when it says in the Psalms that God remembers your sins no more, it means, oh, he knows every detail of what you've done in living color. And he chooses not to act on it. He chooses not to treat you as your sins deserve. So the answer to hyperthymesia spiritually when you have a past of both your sin, but also, and maybe even more than that, people who have sinned against you. The answer is not try to forget it. In fact, if you try to forget it, if you try to sweep it under the carpet, if you try to just not remember it, listen, you have an enemy and the devil will parade it in front of you all day long. No, the gospel answer is that you look it in the face. <laughs> when the devil parades your past in front of you, you look right at it and you announce God's forgiveness over it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sins from you in Jesus Christ. When you have the memories that haunt you from the past that make you think, am I really forgiven? That was really bad. <laughs> what I did there was horrible and you can't get over it, the answer is not forget it, forget it, forget it. No, the answer is you bring it right back and you put it right in front of you and you announce God's forgiveness over it and it loses its power to control you and to bring chaos into your life, to harass you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Your sins, past, present, and future, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, are nailed to the cross. We're gonna, we're gonna sing it here in a moment. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul.